Weird times, creepy crimes, and unexplained phenomenon. If it's weird and it's in Florida, it's on the SoFlo Weird Show. Here's your host and head weirdo, Mia Lorenzo. Welcome, weirdos. Thank you for joining me. The day, July 28th, 1896, which happened to be a Tuesday, of course, that's usually the day of the week set aside for voting, Close to 400 people, including 100 registered black voters, crowded into the second floor of the lobby pool room to vote to incorporate Miami as a city. Fast forward, on this July 28, 2021, Miami will be 125 years old. To celebrate this momentous occasion and to right some very serious wrongs, or shall we say deliberate omissions in our history, I'm joined by my friend, colleague, and SoFlo weirdo, historian Cesar Becerra, who will give us the lowdown about Miami's true origin story. Now, before we do a deep dive into what went wrong in our history and the misguided information that exists, Cesar, take me back to that day in 1896 and give us a general overview as to what Miami was like at that time. So an original misnomer of Miami, the Magic City, which was coined by E.V. Blackman, it connotates a busy place, a place that kind of got on the scene instantaneously, just poof, magic, by mm-hmm. magic. That's a yes and no. It's not necessarily why he named it that, but it is true that the city was booming. So on that day, things are super busy. Miami is going through rocket-like propulsions of growth. Just to bring those hundred or so black voters off the work site, so to speak, Mm -hmm. almost shuts the city down in a way. But they wanted to become, put on the big boy pants instantly, (laughs) forget the town, forget the little village. They wanted to incorporate and they needed those votes. Interestingly enough, you still have a chafing in those days of blacks not necessarily being allowed to vote, blacks being disenfranchised to vote. But when they wanted to become a city... Boy, did they get them there. Yeah, they brought them Uh, in. But it's very Mm -hmm. busy. But when the dust settled, you have to understand the first thing, almost after the gavel that says, we are now a city, new order business, any new business, well, someone raises their hand and says, we got to take that post office and bring it to the north bank of the river. Ah. And this is significant because what they were talking about was the post office inside the Brickle Trading Post. Mm -hmm. And this is significant because... As you learn more about the origin story, you'll notice that there is a family that has been marginalized over and over again. And on day one, mm-hmm. first problem, order of business, move that post office. Okay, which brings me to that hot button issue. So let me read something for you. This is something I found. It was a quick, simple search of Miami. If our listeners go out there and do a quick Google search, this is what you're going to find. Miami is noted as the only major city in the United States founded by a woman. Julia Tuttle, a local citrus grower and a wealthy Cleveland native, was the original owner of the land upon which the city was built. The Great Freeze of 1894-1895 hastened Miami's growth as the crops there were the only ones in Florida that survived. Julia Tuttle subsequently convinced railroad tycoon Henry Flagler to extend his Florida East Coast Railway to the region for which she became known as the mother of Miami. So every time I read that, you know, the more and more I know you, Caesar, and every time I read this, it just really totally hits the nerves. So Caesar, remind our audience what's wrong and what is so missing from this statement. There's so much loaded 
in that <laughs> angle that I could write a whole book about it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wait. I yes, did. Right. <laughs> exactly. So let's start from the beginning. You know, the only major city founded by a woman. And by the way, Julia Tuttle, let me be very clear, is a mother of Miami. Mm-hmm. Yes. But let's backtrack a little bit. Poor Fort Lauderdale. I don't think they like to be called not a major city yeah, right? in the United States. And I don't know who connotates what is a major city. But Mary Brickle, who you'll learn a lot more about in just a second, is the undisputed mother of Fort Lauderdale. Now, if she's the undisputed mother of Fort Lauderdale, then she's a mother of a major American city. Is she not? But mm-hmm. that aside, we have her completely ghosted in Miami's history. The irony being one of your sentences says with the city founded on her land. On well, her land. Yeah, exactly. Well, the land is approximately about a good mile north of the river and a good mile south of the river. And the land south of the river was owned by the Brickle family, William and Mary Brickle. But actually, technically, as we now know, all the land was in Mary Brickle's name Mm -hmm. and all the land north of the river on Julia Tuttle's land. And when the major parties got together, Flagler's right-hand man, James Ingram, William Brickle and Mary Brickle and Julia Tuttle to sign the document that should be considered the birth document of Miami that actually shows the delineations of the town on both sides of the river, Mary Brickle is the first signator on that document that exists now at FIU mm-hmm. and some copies elsewhere. So why is that? Why, why is why, why is a document signed by all mm-hmm. parties saying this is Miami, here are the boundaries, here are the roads, here's where this, and both equal, kind of equal distance on each side of the river. Well, I know why, but yeah. you have to ask yourself, why is Mary number one and two, why has she been forgotten, completely almost erased from our history? Yeah, like deliberately omitted from that statement. Which is its own other book, but luckily I wrote a book that you have two for one. You get most yeah. of the stories. But um, there's about 10 to 15 really defendable cited sources as to why Mary in particular and the Brickles as a broad family were marginalized in our history. There's politics. There's greed. There's jealousy. There's spin. There's marketing. Uh, Sounds like a movie. Yeah. <laughs> There's feminism and the whole issue of women owning land and mm-hmm. uh, a woman being married to a guy who gets more of the, in those days, the guy usually gets the credit. As we saw time and time again, anytime there is a scant memory or recognition of the Brickles, it's usually on William's name. Ironically, Mary owns the land. That's a tall order, but basically she's been highly, highly written out of our story. Let's talk a little bit about your passion and what you've been doing. As if guided by Mary herself, you have been researching this for 25 years, and you have all the proof you need to take this to whoever will listen. So tell us some of those key facts that you uncovered. So 25 years ago, I curated an exhibit that kicked off a lecture and tour series every weekend of the year for the entire 1996 centennial year. And the kickoff was an exhibit that I carried on Mary Brickle's items, okay? Mm -hmm. Mostly in the hands of a gentleman named Stan Cooper and a scant few in the hands of Carmen Petsoulas. We had that at the Women's Club of Coconut Grove and it kicked off the lecture series, but unbeknownst to me, it triggered a little bit of a tsunami of a explosion of controversy (laughs) Mm -hmm. that um, 
well, you're mucking up the story, man. Yeah. This is a great story. Bouquet of flowers, Henry Flagler, railroad magnet, luring him down after Mm -hmm. this freeze. Why are you complicating this? Well, the story is complicated. Yeah. Anytime I hope that your listeners get the notion of a beautiful, tapered, gorgeous story, remember that life is not that simple. Yeah, yeah. Everything is and highly life is messy. <laughs> complicated. But when, when you say, and you're right, I do have corroborated evidence to make a case. I don't have all of the evidence that will ever come down the pike. We're still learning things. Mm-hmm. But 25 years ago, I didn't have half the things I have now, and not just from myself, but other researchers, other historians, other genealogists have found things mm-hmm. that now it's it's become to the moment where it's almost undefendable to go back to what I call the lone shooter story. You know, uh, Julia Tuttle did it all by herself. Uh, to begin with, Julia Tuttle settles into Miami 20 years after William and Mary get here to settle themselves. Exactly. 20 years. How do you define 20 years of pioneering, real pioneering. You know, one gentleman said that when you came to Miami in the early, early, early days, it took you two days to round up the seven people to count them, and you hope that one of them didn't move again. You know, yeah, hey, yeah. Did I not count you already? <laughs> so um, you have you have a an issue of how do you define someone's impact? You also have the sticky situation that okay, let's take the story at face value. Flagler's in West Palm Beach. Julia brings him down to Miami. What's in the middle? Fort Lauderdale, or the New River area, as it was called then. Well, guess who owns all of Fort Lauderdale? Mary Brickle. So Flagler, to get to Miami, has to deal with the Brickles. The Brickle name is always sprinkled lightly after the Julia Tuttle story, but very lightly. Sometimes ignored. I'll give you that. Sometimes it's not there. But most of the time, it's Julia, blah, 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 and... An extra couple of lands that the Brickles threw in. Yeah. Well, what do you mean this threw in? What do you mean actually? Ho, 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 ho. What they do you had mean, far more land. What do you mean the Brickles? I thought this story was cinched and simple. Yeah. So they had far more land. I mean, at the height, Mary owned 6,200 acres of land by 1896. Yeah. In 1874, she owns 2,507.83 acres of land. This is at a time where women can't even vote. Some yeah. states don't allow you to own land if you're a female. The Brickles knew what they were doing. Whether they were vocal about it, which they were, by the way, Ralph Monroe actually, in his book, Commodore Story, talks about it the many times that Mr. Brickle started telling about there's maybe the coming of the railroad one day, and, and it was always promoting the land. I mean, the, how Ralph got to Miami is that Brickle kind of promoted him to come down after saving his bacon after a, a, a ship that he had uh, off of uh, the coast of New York kind of run, run into some foul weather. Uh, There he is. Even in foul weather, Mr. Brickle is promoting South Florida. Mm -hmm. So the Brickles were building an elaborate hook at the end of a peninsula. No one buys that much land just because they were just going to want to buy that much land or sell a few or even develop one section into a community. That's 6,200 acres of land. And can I just say, didn't Julia Tuttle inherit the land from her father? She inherited... The land from her father, one plot of land, but she did start to buy and purchase land through her time here. That has come under incredible and interesting scrutiny because the land buying spree that she went on got her into a lot of debt with no other than Henry Flagler. Mm -hmm. So 
there were moments that Julia borrows money to buy even more land to capitalize again on more sales of land, but they aren't weren't always firing on all all you know six cylinders and the sales weren't always going great. But she kept buying land, and every time she went to go get a loan, Flagler had to endorse the note. Mm. And on three occasions that we have letters now in at History Miami that Beth Brickell found. Flagler is telling Brickle, listen, I don't think you should do this. In fact, this will be the last time I sign this. And then she'd do it again. Yeah. And then the next time he said, well, as long as this is the last loan and I can't. Yeah. The next time he even talks to her, I really wish you'd unload the, the property you have in Cleveland and stop, you know, getting, because you can't. Well, yeah. folks, at one point in time, Julia Tuttle owes Henry Flagler $2.5 million. And that's not a typo. Holy cow. In today's money. Not in back then. Yeah, yeah, money. yeah. I think it's like $80,000. But right. in, in today's money, yeah. can you imagine owing somebody $2.5 million? Flagler, at one point, not only cuts her off, but she sends James Ingram to take back some of this land in their name because she owes him $2.5 million of land. So she wasn't uh, the savvy businesswoman that she's well, portrayed that in the description. Well, that has to really be re-looked at. If, you know, the connotation of Mother of Miami... The connotation was she was an American businesswoman, as Wikipedia starts off with. Also connotates that you are a successful, right? Yes. Right, right, exactly. However, with that said, there is a great quote from John Sewell that once said, to be a pioneer is to know bankruptcy. And I understand that too. But bankruptcy and $2.5 million on the lamb is... Mm -hmm. So you also have to question, well, wait a second. If Julia didn't have Flagler to endorse these notes... She couldn't even begin to try to expand her footprint. Not the case with the Brickles. On several levels, the Brickle land issues are a whole different can of worms. They not only own their land, but they own their land outright. There was no, never any problem with deed issues, with Spanish land grant issues. The Brickles, which actually was just why Flagler signs the contract with the Brickles four months before he signs with Julia. Yeah. Another thing that gets lost to time. Right. Both because their land stuff is already uh, beautifully done up and all, Julia still had to kind of run through the mill and, and figure out, you know, with the land people to make sure the titles were clear of anybody coming in later and saying, no, 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 this is mine. Right. Okay? But secondly, the Brickles knew very savvily that if, if Flagler got to Miami, brought his railroad, and the bridge wasn't built across to their lands, they would be at a disadvantage. So the contract with Flagler was, hey, Flagler, yes, we'll give you our lands. Yes, you can come through Fort Lauderdale, but you have to build a bridge across the river before your train gets here. And Flagler did not do that. Mm. Another issue of why Miami gets most of the credit being built on the north bank of the river because there wasn't uh, a way yeah. to get across. Now, so for example, if you got to Miami in 1896, 1897, you look around and all you know is the city's on the north bank of the river. You're not even, what's that? Right. That's a it's jungle over there. down there. Right. Yeah. You take a ferry across. You started to get your mail. You didn't even know if the mail was there when you got there. Yeah. Everything was a pain to get across the river. So peripherally, Miami's on the North Bank. Right. And yeah, for yeah. everybody and their cousin gets asked later in life, what about talking about the early day? They're all talking about the North Bank of the river. Mm -hmm. So this is a big problem. And this is also a part of where Brickles, mainly William, have a fallout with Flagler. Now, it's not just a fallout. It's a fallout with a purported founding family of Miami mm -hmm. and the big guy, mm -hmm. so to speak. Yeah. I mean, you can go further. There was also a fallout between William and Julia Tuttle's father, not just another guy, 
but a fallout with the father of the mother of Miami. And that's a whole other story. But, but what I'm painting at is that there are times in our history where if you look closer, you can actually pin together uh, a new arc, a complicated set of problems that birthed our city. Right. And it was not easy. It was not as simple. It is a great story, but it's untrue. A couple of reasons it is untrue because the newspapers from the 1920s previous always shared a, a, a mention of Mary, always with a mention of Julia. There was one article that beamed out two families at the head of city roster, the Tuttles and the Brickles. How come that's not seen? How come I can't find that when I search? I mean... Well, that's in my book. It is in a digitized section of the Miami-Dade Public Library main special collections. Yeah, but it should be like right. when well, you do the search. Well, okay. That's a really good question. <laughs> By the way, yeah. there used to be a Wikipedia page mm -hmm. on Mary Brickle. It was taken down. I actually, in my book, talk about the letters I exchanged with Wikipedia. Literally. Really? Talk, okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. Listen, I left no... Yeah, I'm sure you didn't. I, I wanted sure. to know, hey, I remember there's a Bickle page. Right. What happened to it? Right. And they told me, well, the reason it was taken down is there were no citable resources that Wikipedia can reach out to um, and see. Right, right. So, yes, that's digitized, but it's not connected to anything. Right. It's in it's in a scrapbook called the Welsh Scrapbook. It's a family that literally cut up the newspaper and pasted it in a big scrapbook, and, so, and Miami-Dade Public Library uh, scanned, scanned the whole it. thing. But wow. it's still in pieces. It's just now being kind of parsed, and, and Stephanie Garcia has been great to find me. I think she found me like 12 articles of the Brickles and like 20 articles of oh the Julia Oh my God, that's Tuttle. amazing. But what you'll find is another article on the Julia side where her daughter is quoted, not in the story, but in the title that says, stories of my mother weren't always true, weren't always accurate. See? I mean, yeah. I don't even know if she's talking about the myth story or the right. Brickle issue, but the point is- It's not always She's accurate. on record mm -hmm. saying, uh, everything you heard about my mom may not be accurate. Yeah. But the point is- by about the 30s into the 40s, you have a complete soul, uh, you know, what I call like the Lee Harvey Oswald's lone shooter syndrome <laughs> type of just Julia. But 1958, 1958, a lady named Jane Wood Reno mm. does a big story series on women you shall remember. And the first one she did was Mary Balmer Brickle. And underneath that title says, A Mother of Miami. Now, Jane Wood, mm -hmm. I'm not going to mince word here. She was pretty much a badass mm -hmm. in terms of journalism, in terms of a person, a person, a person that just, you know, told it like it is. Well, in the article, she calls Julia Tuttle after a comma, uh, blah, 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 Mary Brickle, mother of Miami, and then comma, along with Julia Tuttle, Miami's other mother. She's calling Julia Tuttle. Oh, wow. She's on the other foot. She's actually saying, and the second article is about Julia. Mm -hmm. So she starts with Mary. Now, why is Jane Wood Reno in 1958? Yeah. Calling my Mary a mother, Miami. Well, I'll tell you why. In those days, when journalism did journalists did articles, they only had they didn't have the internet like we had today. Right. They had to go what we call an envelope clip file. It was a little old lady, a little <laughs> old man that would sit there at the end of every day in the Miami News and the Miami Herald, and they would literally cut up the newspaper, and every article was put into an envelope. Which then, coincidentally, every writer would take that envelope and never put the same article back in the same. No, anyway, I've seen those envelopes. But the point envelopes, is, yeah. there are thousands of them. Yeah, thousands. And Jane Wood Reno yeah. went to an envelope, I surmise, because that's how you got it. And she mm -hmm. took out the Mary Brigham and she looked at the corroborated effort of all those articles dating back to the turn of the century. Mm -hmm. And that's how she gets to her conclusion. She didn't just take it out of her mind. Right, exactly. And it's true. I found articles 
that Mary and Julia were always listed in the same kind of context. Case in point, Larry Wiggins, along with some incredible genealogists, did an incredible book called Miami 1896, and they poured over the newspapers for every day of the year in 1896. Okay, they found some startling things. One of the things that they found is that Mary went in front of the uh, city council and got a uh, a license to operate the ferry across the river because the bridge wasn't there. But another thing he found was that when the metropolis printed their first newspaper, they took six copies, the first six copies. One they saved for prosperity. The second they sent to Henry Flagler up in St. Augustine to say, hey, look, here's the first edition of Metropolis. Right. And the third one they gave to Julia Tuttle and the fourth one they gave to Mary Brickle. Now, mm. why would they give mm-hmm. these key first run only time? Mm-hmm. The fifth and sixth were a, a bidding war between Kirk Monroe uh, another guy who they had like a you know fundraiser type thing for a dollar. Yeah, Somebody yeah, got yeah. It. But the point is, you have to ask, well, why exactly. was Mary uh, thrown in on this deal? Mm-hmm. Well, the reason is, is that people in the knew that knew knew that the Brickles were integral right. to the beginning of and course. the continuation of Miami. Of course. So anyway, just want to let you know a little bit of that. Go back a second. Yeah. Uh, we talked about. You know, some people say, why are you muddying the waters? This is a romantic story about an orange blossom. Now that you've walked through these waters and stuff, are you getting support or are you still getting a little bit of backlash? Oh, a heck of a lot more support than backlash. Okay, good. Uh, By backlash, I mean, you know, I could sense not just from me, but but from Carmen Pitsoulas, who was an advocate of Mary Brickle, found the first photo of Mary Brickle. I witnessed the backlash into her life Mm -hmm. and a little bit of paranoia because there is that, you know, who is actually not for me, who's against me, all that stuff. Uh, But no, this time, 25 years later, uh, there's a lot more support because it's not to support me. And by the way, you don't have to agree with me. It's not about agreeing with what I think it is. It's There are documents now that are irrefutably have to be wrestled with and say, well, what does this really mean? Mm -hmm. And there's enough of those to at the very least say, this is a founding family that has been almost wiped clean. Yeah. When you look deeper and closer, you realize that of the two, William and Mary, Mary was really the one who wore the pants in the family, even financially, et cetera, even contractually. We have, a, we have an actual quote at the archives in the library of Fort Lauderdale of a lawsuit where Mary Brickle was sued by Fort Lauderdale for riparian rights. She took that lawsuit to the Florida Supreme Court. By the way, you're not anybody in this country to get sued. <laughs> and I want to add, you're not anybody until you fight the, to the Supreme Court. Yeah, right. And Mary did. Yeah. She wasn't like, she wasn't this wallflower. Like, All right, whatever. No, she fought at the Supreme Court. At the Supreme Court, they deposed James Ingram and they asked him, well, Mr. Ingram, tell us about uh, the early days of Miami, dealing with Mr. Brickle. And he interjected, oh, no, no, no. I dealt with Mary Brickle. Mm. That's a huge statement. Yeah. Uh-huh. No one knew that statement. For a long time. You know, I don't think, I think I was only the second person to witness that or the first one to come out and publish that detail. And it was amazing when I read it and I saw it and I have copies of it and they have copies of it. And wow. Yeah. It's a wow. In fact, when you know where to look now, you can now see the crumb trail that Mary was everywhere. Mm-hmm. See, she is guiding you. Yeah, I think she is. Well, <laughs> she's leaving you. You know, the crumbs. Carmen was told by Roosevelt Peacock, who wasn't also no wallflower, and she's a, a scion of a of pioneer family, the Peacocks. Uh, once told Carmen Pitsula, "Listen, uh, Mary Brickle has been overlooked. 
mm-hmm. her role in the beginning of this has been completely overlooked. So that started Carmen's journey. Carmen got me going. And then later on, the evidence got me continually going. And then later, later on, I think you're right. It, 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 there's parts of this journey I've been on that's like, and it's going to sound loosey-goosey, but that I have been somehow escorted by the Brickles. Yeah. You yeah, know. you meet the right people and you're there Well, at things the right, have happened. Yeah. They're all mm-hmm. in the book, but it's pretty scary. Yeah. Like there's parts of this project that have been on autopilot. Mm-hmm. But things just, even when I, we, when it comes down to writing about this stuff, there were times, I'm not going to lie, it was hard to deal with all the intricacies of making sure I have this, that, and the other. But other parts just wrote themselves, mm-hmm. you know. And another part is just, part of the book is not necessarily the facts, although they're in there but also is to look at certain debates from a different angle. Mm-hmm. And there are questions that have never been asked about the quote-unquote orange blossom story. For example, okay, uh, she sent a bouquet, which is widely purported. No. We find out from James Ingram on November 20th, 1920, at the Women's Club of, of Miami. He gives a speech that says, listen, it was I that clipped several different tree clippings, put them in a box with damp cloth, I mean, this detail, and took them to Flagler. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing important. You, you know, Flagler is not going to move heaven and earth because someone sends a, a bouquet of flowers. Right, right. That's a misdirection. That's yeah. a beautiful story. Yeah. Uh, as as Bruce Epperson writes, who's an incredible historian and a writer, uh, as, as Beth Burkell writes, it was about land, mm-hmm. a lot of land. Yeah. Sometimes in total millions of acres of land. And it was a very more complicated dealing with the state before he even moved. So the state had to guarantee Flagler that the land in front of them would be coming to him because there was a lot of people in line to get that land, not mm-hmm. just Henry Flagler. Yeah. Now, that's a very complicated story, but I'm just letting you know that the bouquet is one thing. But nobody's been uh, you know, asked, posed the question, well, wait a second. Would Flagler trust a bouquet arriving no. yeah, right. from somewhere else yeah. unless his people brought the bouquet, or if you want to go right. with the bouquet, even though it was several different clippings. tree clippings. Yeah. But um, Seth Bramson, the historian, uh, accurately quotes Flagler as saying when he sees this, he says, are you sure, gentlemen? Now, you see, he's not asking, are you sure, gentlemen, that these are from Julia Tuttle? Right. Are you sure you pick these things? Exactly. Are you sure this yeah. is not in some uh, hothouse, garden house that, that, you know, because it was protected? Mm-hmm. No, and they have to say, yeah, it, it, it Miami was spared. But let's look at the different angle from Miami being spared from the winter freezes. No one's asked, well, wait a second. If the freeze of the 1894 puts the state in its knees and the second one in February completely kills the state, well, wouldn't it make sense that that's the cheapest time to move because land prices drop, everybody's out of a job. Are you seeing a pattern Mm -hmm. here? It was the moment to move. Yeah, yeah. Despite... Exactly. The blossoms, the thing, yeah. the state of Florida. You have to ask yourself, economically, mm-hmm. why did Flagler wait so long and say to Julia Tuttle, and I'm not telling, I'm telling you, Julia Tuttle wrote letters and she is definitely a she mother of Miami. Persistent. But I believe there's a there's space for co-mothership. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of that, Mia, I got to tell you something. There's a little bit of a problem. You know that adage they, uh, that we know from our history books, Houston, we have a problem? Yeah, right. Well, yeah. Houston is hot on our tail saying, knocking on the door, say, Miami, Houston is your problem now. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that is Houston's about to bestow and has been bestowing 
accolades to Charlotte Allen, a marginalized woman who may very well really have started Houston. Wow. In fact, historians now are rounding those wagons. If they do that, if they unequivocally do that, then we have a problem because Miami mm -hmm. will no longer be, even if you take Mary out of the equation, no longer be the only city started by a woman. The only exactly. major city started. Houston cannot be denied it's not a major city. Right. We can go with a Pepsi challenge on Fort Lauderdale, <laughs> right. but Houston is definitely a major city. Of course. But if that happens, then uh, we're no longer... Exactly. But we really aren't that. That's not really true. We have two co-mothers. Mm -hmm. One is Mary Brickle and one is Julia Tuttle. Yeah. And if we embrace that, well, now we become number one again. I'm mm -hmm. not saying that's why we should embrace it, but then we become the only major city founded by two women. And I say, what's wrong with that? You keep talking about your book, but I don't think we've officially addressed it ah. in this episode. So how are you getting the word out? Ways to get ways for people to get this information. So I wrote a book. I wrote a book that I thought I would write years later, but I said to myself, you know, with the pandemic, with the 125th anniversary coming, I could wait till the cows come home and there'll still be new information. There's always going to be new information coming from the Brickles, even existing information that are archives. I haven't seen it all. It's that voluminous. So I decided this is the time to write a book called Orange Blossom 2.0 and focus on the origin story myth with a few little off ramps of my journey over the 25 years of watching researching and witnessing this journey. So Orange Blossom 2.0 is a 240-page book with only one image in it. Mm -hmm. It is not a photo book. And that's important to me because Mary was once marginalized in part because there, there purportedly was no photo of Mary. You know, when you give somebody an accolade of mother or father, it'd be nice to have a photo of them. That changed when Carmen found the first one. Uh, so I've, I decided that in an age where we have a lot of books today being, you know, heavy on the photos, to take my chance on the written opinions. Notice I say opinions because a lot there's a lot of facts in my book, but also there's a lot of opinions and a lot of questions that I ask. But there's only one drawing. It was lovingly drawn from a photo of Mary Brickle by Christina Peterson, who did mm -hmm. a massive beautiful. Job. Yeah. And Christina Peterson is not your just your regular artist. I didn't choose her because she was good at drawing. I chose her because she really cares deeply about the context of history into her art here mm -hmm. in South Florida. The book uh, has about 22 chapters. Uh, there's an epilogue and a forward and an introduction by Bob Carr, and a forward by B. Brickle, one of the surviving five Brickles today. And I think um, if you give it a chance, I think you're going to be uh, really jazzed to see how cool and interesting a complicated story can be. Um, and Bob Carr is with the- Bob Carr yeah, wrote the introduction, yeah. Archaeologist. Archaeologist, who actually goes back to dealing with the Brickle site when he was 10 years old, digging on that property when he was a kid mm -hmm. and actually playing kind of a duck and see with Maud Brickle, mm -hmm. who was sometimes reported to be a little bit interesting lady, uh, but uh, he kind of played hide and seek with her for Did many he years really? until they actually had a detente and she would allow him to kind of dig. As long as he stayed a good distance, he found out how much distance away. Mm -hmm. But Bob's been digging there all, you know, his whole life. I didn't know that till I uh, came back from Australia. I went to Australia researching the Brickle. So when I came back, he was very interested in my findings in Australia. I didn't know that, but he was writing a novel and one of the characters of the Brickles. So, oh, okay. so he yeah. wanted to know everything. I, yeah. Know. And that's when I found out the fuller story that Bob's been digging there since he was 10. But yeah, the, and he's always been intrigued with the Brickles. And I didn't know that, but in introduction, he talks about a time where the wrecking ball destroyed the Brickle Mansion finally in the early 1960s. And when they hit a column, all these papers started flooding down. And of all things... The papers were photographs <gasps> of Fort Lauderdale. And he still to this day is like, I don't know why there were photos 
inside these the columns, columns. But there they were. That's weird. He took those, donated them to the History of Miami, so there are are there. Listen, this is the best podcast for a family of the Brickles to be on. <laughs> because there is a lot of stuff that's a little different about the Brickles. They were yeah. different. And let's face it, when you're a little different, you're going to be put in your little special corner. Yes. yes. Sometimes that corner... Is real far away. <laughs> yeah, on the other side of the bank, other side, exactly. on the other side of the river. Right. Speaking of which, for our weird audience, what are some little weird facts? Maud was quite weird, doesn't she? So Maud had reportedly 24, 26. One article says 30 dogs. She had a lot of dogs. Holy cow. Yeah, a lot of Not dogs. the cat lady, the dog lady. Okay. However, in each of the photos, there's about five or six photos over the years. Maud was her daughter. Maud, Maud yeah. was the youngest daughter, right, the last okay. one to be born. Purportedly the first white child born in early Miami. Uh, so the Brickles had seven children, ended up with six, one of them died, but Maud was the last and the most eccentric probably of all of them. And she was the last to live in the Brickle Mansion uh, after she died and the Brickle Mansion was done. Mm-hmm. Although my, Mary donated a piece of land to the city, the rest of the Brickle property slowly over the years was sold off. But the mansion had to be raised not just because it was old, built originally in 1907, but also because people, after her death, ran in and started pushing out the walls trying to find the hidden money. It was a whole different story. Ah, but hidden money. the place money. was like a Swiss cheese block of cheese. Really? Bob Carr even remembers walking in there and saying, holy cow, someone's looking for something. And that's because purportedly, and not just purportedly, we have now have a letter from Charles's wife, one of the Brickle children's wife, Fanny Brickle, that said that Charles said every dollar Mary put in the bank, she put one away at her home. Oh, man. And if she was worth $2 million when she died, yeah. well, there's $2 million somewhere. Somewhere. And Fanny Prickle was very interested in if ever that money showed up, mm-hmm. that her family has a right to that money. But still to this day, that Never money been has found. not shown up. Weird. It's an interesting case study in my book called bronze atm that particular chapter <laughs> is very uh kind of follows that that important document which is now housed at fiu special collections in the stephen and dorothea green library and that letter is golden because it, it, it talk about weird maud brickle shuts herself into a room after mary dies for 24 hours she doesn't let anybody in then with the body, with she, the body. She, wow, that's and creepy. the coffin, yeah. And the coffin, by the way, is pure bronze, mm. not bronze plated, not bronze colored, okay, not half bronze, <laughs> pure bronze. And uh, after a couple of years of being in the ground, amazingly enough, Fanny's letter says the brothers one day, the Brickle brothers, were out of town, and Maud Brickle buys a mausoleum, exhumes the body, and throws him into the mausoleum. And then 20, 30 years after that, she says, quote unquote, Miami's getting a little too noisy, even for the dead. I'm going to move him again. <laughs> and she moves him again. She moves him to again. To the Woodlawn Cemetery. Now I'm going to let you guys stew on that because you have to buy my book to get yeah, the right. story. But it's a fascinating <laughs> thesis on why. And by the way, side note, only Mary Brickle's body was switched to a new coffin on one of those moves. Really? I'd love to keep telling people about this. Uh, the more people I can tell, uh, the more, and again, share. I'm not going to force this on anybody. This is my mm-hmm. collective opinion after many years, although people are joining the, the rank. These institutions, in effect, are saying, 
well, there's something here. Of course. You know, you can't deny so it. I'm, I'm very, very proud of it. And the team led by Cindy Seip, who designed an incredible book, uh, Becca Pilling Knowles, who's an editor uh, that I would work with many years ago, not in this capacity, but edited the book. Larry Ludich uh, was printing the book in Bonita. Uh, and on and on and on. I'm just uh, yeah, Christina you have a, who, who drew the drawing. Yeah, you have a good team. It's a good team. I'm very blessed. I could not have done this book. This book was decided to be done at the very 11th hour, although I had everything in my head and on paper in different capacities. It's a, it was a late start, but I, I, I wanted to make it. a statement yeah. on the 125th. Yeah. And and uh, from what we see, you know, the book is going to be unveiled that day. But yeah. what we're seeing on the computer, oh, my gosh, it's beautiful. I can't wait to flip through the pages and sniff that me book. Me too. You know what me I mean? too. It's going to be exciting. Absolutely. Me too. I can't wait either. Yeah. Thank you for being with oh, us. You, and we hope our audience, at least the local ones here, will join us. And yes, you can go to soflowweird.com and check everything out. Thank you, awesome. Caesar. Thank you so much. This has been a special episode for Miami's 125th anniversary, and even though this story is very localized to my hometown, the subject of lost history can resonate with any city or state. If curiosity strikes you in your hometown's history, we encourage all of our listeners to dig deep into the archives, do your own investigating, and uncover those hidden truths so you can find your own Mary. For more information on Orange Blossom 2.0 and a list of events, go to SoFloWeird.com and click on the big orange in the upper left corner. Shop our merch page where you can purchase the book in print or audio form, and soon it will be available in Spanish and Creole. Caesar is also available for talks and group tours. Know of a weird place or have a weird tale to tell? Go to SoFloWeird.com. If you want more Strange Florida stories, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit us on Facebook and Instagram. You can find us by searching at SoFloWeird. And please join our SoFlo Weirdos Facebook group, where we share Florida's dubious tales every week. I'm Mia Lorenzo. Thank you for listening to the SoFlo Weird Show. Special thanks goes to our weird announcer, Joe Johnson, and Michelle McArdle for promotion and production assistance. If you wish to support this podcast and our freakish mission to entertain your insatiable appetite for weird stories, then go to our website, pick up some SoFlo swag, or buy us a coffee, and we'll give you a shout-out on the show. This has been a Sideshow Charlie production inspired by Florida's master of the weird, Charlie Carlson. Stay weird, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>